Thanks for listening to The Rest is Politics. Sign up to The Rest is Politics Plus to enjoy ad-free listening, receive a weekly newsletter, join our members' chat room and gain early access to live show tickets. Just go to therestispolitics.com. That's therestispolitics.com. Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. Hello and welcome to The Rest is Politics with me, Rory Stewart. And me, Alistair Campbell. We're recording this on Tuesday afternoon, the day after our emergency Liz Truss victory pod. Um, today's episode, we'll talk a little bit more about the Prime Minister, cover some stories from abroad too. Um, we're going to start though with obviously the thing that's on every listener's mind, which is, Alistair, did you really go for a swim in the Lido instead of watching Boris Johnson's leaving speech this morning? Because that's not great preparation for today's podcast. Uh, I went to the Lido at 7. I was in the water at 7.01. I was out of the water at 7.25. And I listened to Boris Johnson on Radio 5 Live as I walked home. Is that okay? And that was was enough for me to uh, realise that he he left office exactly as he entered office, as a liar and a fantasist, talking about this amazing country that he transformed in the (laughs) three years there. And... Without a hint of humility or contrition or any sense that he was anything other than a wonderful figure uh, who would go down in British history as one of our great leaders, and then off he toddled to Balmoral to resign. And many people will sort of sort of believe that when they had this line that, of course, troubles me a lot, um, which was, <laughs> he says he's he's heading off like Cincinnatus to his plough. And the point about Cincinnatus is Cincinnatus a Roman. Yeah, exactly. Roman politician who sets off his plan and then gets summoned back to save the country. So and and became a dictator, didn't he? Oh, that's that's. I think he was an emergency mm. dictator. Yeah, we'll, mm. we'll get some. Yeah, mm. that's good. Good. That's a good. But line. that was classic, wasn't it? There was there was there was it was that was totally thrown out there to have people telling that story. And then if he's asked about it, he'll say, "Well, no, no, it was just a joke, just a joke, whatever." But no, if I was Liz Truss, of all, you know, I'd be I'd be worried about Johnson's intentions. And I think William Hague was right when we talked to him recently when he said Johnson's friends should tell him in no uncertain terms he should stay out. But he won't. He's incapable of uh, being anything other than the centre of attention. So speaking of William Hague, good article in The Times today. Um, it points out we've had six foreign secretaries in the last eight years compared to six foreign secretaries in the 24 years before that. Mm. And imagine what that means for British foreign policy, because diplomacy almost more than anything else relies on these these relationships. I'm, I'm here speaking to you from Uganda, where the president has been in, President Museveni has been in for, for decades now. And you only really begin to get anywhere with relationships, I think, on at least the second or third visit. And the problem that we've been facing with our foreign secretaries, indeed all our ministers, is that they rarely make it to the first visit, let alone beyond. 
No, but added to which, we're just not taken as seriously as we were, are we? I mean, the, the, the country is not taken as seriously. And look, Liz Truss, I don't know. I mean, has she has she really been effective as a foreign secretary? I mean, she's been effective in terms of persuading the Tory party members that she somehow single-handedly stood up to Vladimir Putin. I'm sure it's news to Vladimir Putin. Uh, but I don't know. I just, I just worry of the extent to which we're just not seen as a serious country and our politics. You, I, you know, I, I mentioned this guy from, I talked to you from Singapore. He said, we used to look at your politics with jealousy and now we just sort of look at it and no, so I, I could, it's couldn't, sad. couldn't agree more. And it's been going on, unfortunately, a, bit, a little bit longer than even the horrible Boris Johnson. I remember my friend John saying that he'd taken a friend of his from India into the House of Commons to watch a debate. And he used to do it in the 1980s with enormous pride. And he remembers sitting, this was in my early days under David Cameron, just sitting there and almost kind of weeping with shame at seeing MPs all on their phones, the very poor quality of the debate, very poorly attended chamber on a really big, serious foreign policy issue. That's horrible. Um, one small thing that I noticed, she's, as Liz Truss, has said that she wants to create a much smaller, tighter office in Downing Street. And that is also what David Cameron said he was going to do in 2010. And it went wrong for him because what happened is that he came in, Gordon Brown before him had been running, had inherited actually from Tony Blair, these delivery units where number 10 was really quite a machine. It was running a lot of government. And David Cameron thought that he could just undo all that and have much a smaller group of special advisors around him. And the truth was that it really didn't work. And in fact, the permanent secretaries who came in were very, very worried about the way things were being run because you can't just remove that and hope that by removing it, you're going to return to some imagined dream of cabinet government. And I'm very, very worried that what you end up with is very inexperienced young special advisors who really don't get most of these subjects, trying to bully and boss around other departments, other cabinet ministers. So I, I'm I'm troubled by that that beginning change in the institution of government. But she, but she wants to, she, you know, she's made a big thing during the leadership election about, you know, cutting down the size of the state. And I do think they've got to revisit this whole thing about the way they talk about the public sector and the way they talk about civil servants. It's almost like they are, you know, John Major made that speech a few months ago about the attitude now, we are the masters now. In other words, what we say goes. And if you've got somebody like Johnson and people say the same about Liz Trust, that they have very fixed positions, they reach idiosyncratic ideas, and then they want them delivered. The civil, they can't do them on their own. But prime, prime ministers can't make policy happen. They, they can devise policy, but you need civil servants to implement it. And, and add the problem, which is that the civil servants feel cowed and terrified. So many, many departments, they're not putting up proper advice to ministers because they're terrified about putting in writing things that are going to get them attacked. A, a very toxic culture has been created where if ministers don't like what they read, they jump up and down and they say, this is defeatist, this isn't echoing the messages we want. And the next thing you know, a few weeks later, they're saying, well, I don't like this briefing I've received. This is absolutely hopeless. You're not telling me anything. And the civil servant has to say, well, there's a reason why it's hopeless. Because if I actually wrote down on this bit of paper for the meeting that you're going into, minister, the truth of the situation, my whole civil service department would go into a panic because the whole thing is terrified by these very erratic, extreme views from some of the senior ministers. Do you think you should tell our listeners about the message you got from a, a senior diplomat about the yeah. Foreign Office's now, handling let's, of let's, our podcast? Now, to, to, to be absolutely clear, uh, this was a message I got some time ago. <laughs> so this is not something which um, is, is anywhere. This is not a trust thing. 
It's, no, it's, and it's not. But it not might really, be because she was the foreign secretary at the time. And, and it was foreign secretary at the time. That's true. Foreign secretary at the time. But definitely something I received before the current trip. So this is somebody writing saying, like half the country, I'm a fan of the tonic that is the rest of his politics, British diplomat. I thought I had to let you know, entirely unsourceable, of course, that FCDO has blocked the podcast download on official phones on account of explicit <laughs> content. God forbid we offended the diplomats. <laughs> is that because of the rating? Because I think because I occasionally use the F word. We apparently are we we are put down as not adult material, but it's kind of explicit. I think is the word. I I didn't. You know, I read that message out on our List Trust podcast, and something stopped me from reading the name of the person who sent it. And I'm very glad that I did because it turned out that they were a civil servant. <laughs> <laughs> So um, there's a lot of angry people out there. And I'll tell you the other thing I've noticed. I noticed when I was at the Lido, (laughs) this is not being seen as a new dawn, is it? I mean, people are just sort of, oh, God, it's right. There's no... There's no great love for what's going on. But there are opportunities for a new dawn. I don't think those trusts is going to take them. But but let's just take a moment here, just in in the fantasy world in which Alistair Campbell and Rory Stewart have any influence over events at all. Here's one one thought that I had. Um, So I'm traveling through Africa at the moment. I'm on on my way to Kenya. But I have the inauguration. The election's been upheld. So William Ruto is about to be inaugurated as president. I was at the last inauguration, which I think I told you about, where I got knocked a row back because a senior, or actually not very senior Chinese official came in. (laughs) I was considered much more important than I was. Um, But um, I do think the more that I travel around Africa, the more I realize that Britain has an opportunity to lead the world in changing the way it does development assistance, the way it does aid. African countries are completely fed up with the fact that they think of aid as very, very patronizing. Most senior African politicians that I meet remember being lectured in the 1960s and 70s, remember the way in which development aid was used to try to humiliate and patronize African nations. They're looking for a new model, what they call a modern partnership. And is that not is that not what the Chinese are doing though? Well, this is you're quite right to come to that, and this is where I think we come in. We are right here, Britain and Africa is right at the front line of taking on China and Russia. And the message I'd put to this trust is whatever you do, do not cut the development aid budget in places like Africa. Because we have a real opportunity to make a modern partnership, which is not the Chinese and Russian partnership one that differentiates itself. And I, of course, would argue that one element of that is trusting citizens in Africa by doing cash programs, giving them choice, giving them freedom on how they, not not you and me turning up and telling people how to spend their money, but actually being really radical, setting up the beginnings of a welfare state. If you're going to use a second successive main podcast to promote your <laughs> new job, about which we're all very, very happy. I'm going to jump forward and ask you one of the questions that we got this week. And I'm also then going to give you a couple of comments from the showers in the Lido, you'll be pleased to know. Stephen Finlay, if we paid all residents of a village in cash and they all tried to buy a cow, how do we stop a cattle rancher with a few cows driving up prices? That's the first question. Jim Down, who's a doctor... <laughs> who swims in the Lido, he, he, he enjoyed hearing about your job and he enjoyed and he, he loved your passion and excitement about it. His question was, how do you sustain that? How do you give them a cash payment 
and then build sustainable prosperity. And Russell Hay, <laughs> who is also a swimmer, and he's worried that you underestimate the broader economic impact. And he's also worried about how you assess this unless you have the middle people, the assessors that you actually say you want to get rid of by just giving them cash. So there you are. We talk about nothing but your new job. That's, the that's incredibly kind. So just for listeners who haven't been keeping up, I've just taken over as the as the president, the, the sort of CEO of a, a, a charity called Give Directly. Yeah, get and, your title uh, right. Get, get, it, get it right. And um, so three challenges there. I'm not sure I can deal with all of them in a very short answer. But firstly, on inflation, we very, very good research on this stuff. There have been over 200 academic papers on cash. And the truth is that if you do stuff in one village, it doesn't have a big inflation impact on the country. In fact, the model is that unless you put about 20% of the gross domestic product to the country in as cash, you're unlikely to drive up prices. What will happen is that people will respond. You're right. Somebody from a neighboring village will bring some cows over so they can be bought. But we don't end up with huge inflation in prices. Next next challenge. Um, sustainability. Yeah, sustainability. So there it's true that there will always be people in any country who are going to have to continue to receive social security payments, be true in Britain, true in the United States, true in Africa. Africa is no different. There will be people who are disabled, elderly, and we have to set up in the end in countries as they develop something like a welfare state for people who can't look after themselves. But there are many, many people, the majority, in fact, of the people who are currently living in extreme poverty who are young who are entrepreneurial, very, very young populations in Africa, for whom a lump sum cash payment gives them that opportunity to set up a business, to start trading. And it's remarkable, the data, been fantastic studies on this from Bangladesh through to Africa, that pretty soon people end up with very significant savings, investments, incomes, because what's holding them back fundamentally? But there must be some who just go and blow it. There must be. Yeah, yeah definitely. There are definitely people who, who go and blow it. As there are in our own country, mm. but mm. but it, but it's true that and well, it's human beings. You're giving money to human beings, but mm. generally speaking, if you're one of the very very extreme poor, you're not that likely to blow it because you really understand much more than you or I do the value of money. Because every mm. single dollar means to them what hundred or five hundred dollars would mean to us. Mm. Well, Stephen Finley can let us know whether he thought you answered the first part, and I will report back from Jim and Russell in the showers where we have these very elevated conversations. <laughs> these conversations in the showers. <laughs> um, so I also love this sort of vision of your morning. So you, you wake up in the morning at 6.30 in the morning, is that right? And then you go for a swim in an outdoor pool. Is it yeah, heated? With, with Fiona, no, it's not heated. In fact, it's too warm at the moment. It's too muggy. <laughs> we like it really, really cold. Do you, so do you go in the middle of winter? Are you like one of these kind of polar bear types? Yeah, through the winter. The, the colder, the better. And then it's, it's, and And then... To, to get your blood pressure going, you then listen to Boris Johnson's resignation speech on your way home. Not, not, not every day. I mean, th <laughs> thank, thank, thankfully, there's only been the one resignation speech. His brother's actually, his brother Joe's actually a, an, an irregular swimmer at the Lido. Um, so we occasionally have polite conversations about politics. What about the, <laughs> where, 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 so what about this? Um, we talked a little bit about Kwasi Kwarteng. What about James Cleverley? What do you know about James Cleverley? James Cleverley, he was one of Boris Johnson's, um, my, my memory of him, I hope I'm getting this right, not being unfair to James. I think he was one of Boris Johnson's lieutenants when Boris Johnson was mayor of London, uh, served as deputy mayor for a bit. He, uh, like me, did a, uh, a short course at Sandhurst, very short course at Sandhurst, and then I think was in the Territorial Army. He's interesting. I mean, so from a, 
I guess I, I think he, he talks a lot about his background. It's quite an interesting background. One black parent, one white parent. He, um, very, very proud of his military service. I mean, I like James actually. I'm, I'm sort of skirting around the edges of this. I, I wanted to tempt him to be my running mate when I ran for the leadership in 2019. And he quite sensibly threw in his lot with Boris Johnson, wouldn't have anything to do with me. Notwithstanding that slight grumble I have against him, the reason I did it is that he's actually, he, he's good at being funny. He talks normal better than most MPs. Mm-hmm. He's quite quick on Twitter. And he's a grown up. I mean, he's somebody who you could take into a meeting with a, a senior foreign uh, official and he'll be polite. He'll listen. He'll be thoughtful. Is he clever? No, I don't think he's, I don't think he'd, he'd say that his big thing is, is, is that. I think what he is, is a, he's a sensible, thoughtful person. I think he's somebody who. Do you not, do you not think that foreign secretaries, particularly in the world that you just defined, do you not think they need to be really clever? I really like f- clever foreign. You like really secretaries. clever foreign secretaries, do you? I Who, do. Who's, who's I your do. favourite foreign secretaries? I, I mean, I do think Robin Cook could be very, very tricky, but he was incredibly clever and smart, yeah. both yeah. politically and intellectually. I used to love Hans Dietrich Genscher. <laughs> do you remember with the yellow jumpers? Yeah, yeah. And then there was this tradition of very grand conservative foreign secretaries, wasn't there? Going from Lord Carrington through to Douglas Hurd. Douglas Hurd. Yeah, Douglas, I think Douglas Hurd was clever. Um, well, of course, he was head boy at Eton, top oh scholar. Oh my Eton. God! Oh, listen, <laughs> we've done the diplomat. Shall we tell our listeners about about yeah. our other very distinguished listener who yeah, yeah. sent your message? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I yeah. will let you. I will let you do the content of the said distinguished listeners message and i will not say anything i will let you present it at face value and i actually <laughs> thought he made a, quite a good case for himself well i i thought it was very very brave so the head head, head master of eton has written in as you anyone who's not been following this too obviously anyone who listens to this knows that all that alistair does is grumble about eton all the time no, it's not all that i do i do a lot of things um so he says he says continuing he's a very good he's a very he's a very game the headmaster of eton. continuing to love the podcast uh New role sounds fascinating. I heard your Q&A on Thursday. Stuff about Eaton, sending you a few bits and pieces to give you some more Eaton partnership info and a copy of our recent inspection report. I think you should add the colour that he listened to the last episode of the podcast, driving to Middlesbrough. I thought that was quite interesting. He was driving to Middlesbrough. It's good. So they're supporting new sixth forms and they're bidding under the government's free school programme. They're going to add significant top-up funding a million pounds per school per year in perpetuity to the government funding. Schools yet to be approved. And then there was some quite quite nice articles. So Ian, Ian Austin, Labour MP, who I guess you know. You know Ian Austin, right? Ex-Labour MP, now a, a peer yeah. appointed by Johnson, I think. But there were some, there were some Labour council leaders who were giving their very positive remarks. Yeah, Simon Henderson, who's the headmaster of Eton, is levelling up education in the North by helping young people in deprived areas get into the best universities. And the headline was, Eton's woke headmaster deserves praise, not criticism. So, and actually, I think it's a sort of, maybe an attack on me. I don't know. He says, rather than briefing against the headmasters, old Etonian detractors would do better to focus on all he's doing. Yeah, so I, I just think I should let that, uh, I will doubtless come back to say all sorts of things about Eton, but I, I think fair play to the headmaster of Eton for listening to the podcast as he drives to one of these schools in a working class area of the North. Fair play to the headmaster of Eton for challenging me, uh, for not being fair, and fair play for setting out what he's doing. <laughs> I still think that Eton and Oxbridge are two of the reasons why this country is such a mess. But anyway. But, but, but didn't, didn't, didn't you go to Oxbridge, Alistair? 
I did. I did. <laughs> and that's, that's why I can say as, as an insider that I'm not persuaded that it does um, all no. the good that it claims. And that's all, all that amazing French and German we keep getting on the show. It's partly, partly, <laughs> due, partly due to that Oxford education. Isn't it? Maybe time for a break. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Looking to instantly upgrade your Mother's Day gift from typical to meaningful? Shop Etsy. Now until May 12th, get up to 30% off personalized jewelry, style, decor, and so many other items mom will love. And if you want her to know you put a ton of thought into her present, use Gift Mode. Gift Mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting so you can easily find well-crafted, original, and affordable pieces from small shops. Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about mom, and Gift Mode instantly gives you curated ideas based on hundreds of personas. Need something original and affordable for Mother's Day? Etsy has it. Shop until May 12th for up to 30% off gifts for mom. Terms apply. The Hargan women seem to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I'm just praying to God this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker. The Hargan Family Killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, The Hargan Family Killings, wherever you get your podcasts. And welcome back to The Rest is Politics uh, with me, Rory Stewart. And me, Alistair Campbell. Tell us a bit about Chile, Biden, Trump. Any thoughts on what's happening internationally? Yeah, well, first of all, before I, I just want to thank everybody who... I got a lot of very, very nice messages from our listeners last week about me talking about my depressive episode, which has sort of lingered all week and I've, it's rumbled on and off. But I just wanted to say we got some, I know you did as well, we got some amazing um, people sharing their stories, people giving hope and solidarity. So I really want to say thank you for that. Um, Chile was extraordinary this week. Absolutely extraordinary. If you think about it, there were, there was trouble in the streets. There was, there was real violence going on and because there were massive calls for constitutional change, okay? And so Gabriel Boric, this young 36 now guy, comes along. Who, who we've all we've spoken about, just to remind readers, but Gabriel Boric is this amazing Listeners, kind of, the people listen to podcasts. Listeners, sorry. They read books and newspapers <laughs> and magazines. <laughs> He's kind of a classic kind of sort of out of central casting student revolutionary, kind of big beard, casual clothes, 
became, you know, leader of his country at the age of 36, one of the youngest leaders in the entire world, came in on the back of introducing a radical left-wing populist constitution, and then over to Alistair for the denouement of the story. Well, it comes along, and, and, it, re- and it, was, it was done through a 155-member um, consultative assembly of non-kind of traditional political people. Um, they came up with these, mainly political newcomers, they came up with these very, very, very far range, wide ranging and pretty radical proposals across social rights, environmental rights, gender equality, parity in government, access to abortion, gay rights, plurinationalism, uh, recognizing the indigenous communities in Chile, access to education, health, clean water, animal rights. It was a huge thing. And I get, I fear it's one of those things where they just got carried away and put too much in and they gave too much for their opponents to to go at, and he ended, they, they ended up losing by 61.9 to 38.1, which is pretty crushing. They're going to go back. They're going to, do, they, they're going to ask them to, to redo it and have <laughs> another go, because if they don't, they've still got Pinochet's constitution. The, the, the whole thing is completely mad, isn't it? But it's also <laughs> compulsory voting. So everybody, it's not like Brexit where people have a, a debate about what the majority of people thought. It's everybody voted. And crushing 62% of people vote against, which is really confusing for the new president. So he's elected on a manifesto we're going to bring change. It's also a real reminder of why one doesn't want to do referendums. Remember, we were talking about this in relation to Colombia, where again, celebrity, you know, great Nobel Peace Prize winning president comes in, does this peace deal, presents the referendum on the peace deal to the people and things rejected. They They had a referendum in 2020 on whether there should be a new constitution and it passed by 80%. So, <laughs> so they won that one. Then he won an election. And then he comes in and they've been absolutely trans. But it was the other thing that was amazing. This is why I think that, you know, we, we, when, when people hear our interview with Mark Drakeford and we talk about the, the importance of some of these constitutional questions, to see those massive crowds, really huge crowds out on the streets of Chile campaigning one way or the other on these big constitutional questions, I actually found it incredibly exciting. Um, and I th- and, and I think they'll come. I, I think they will come back with something. Uh, no, I think Biden Trump's worth mentioning just because of I think Biden's speech about you know th- they're both basically made speeches last week saying that this we're now fighting for the soul of America and it, it sort of does feel like that. And I thought it was very interesting that Biden, I think for the first time, went very very directly for Donald Trump as the cause of this absolute polarization and the. You know, they obviously fear the for the future of American democracy. It's a big moment. It's pretty, pretty serious stuff, isn't it? Pretty serious stuff. Well, thank you guys very, very much. A bit of a short episode um, uh, today because we've been doing an enormous number of different different things. And we can't um, we can't leave without plugging Blackpool, Roy. And, I, and I've got an idea. I've got oh, an idea. Gone, yeah. So this just remind people, Winter Gardens Blackpool, huge, biggest venue Alistair and I have ever played. Saturday, eighth of October. Well, it might be the biggest you've ever played. I have actually played bigger. Actually, I've, worry, done, I've done the Albert Hall. Oh, actually. Well, you've done that. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, Saturday, eighth of October, eight pm. I think we, we we pretty much sold out the bottom bit, but we've now got to go up to the top bit. But what my idea was, Blackpool Illuminations. I mean, I know we've got an energy crisis, but apparently the Blackpool Illuminations are on. And they're free. So people should go to Blackpool to see the illuminations for free and then come and pay to see us. What a great idea that is. Actually, Blackpool is a very, very great place to visit. If you've not visited Blackpool, you must visit Blackpool as well as coming to hear the two of us. At the Winter Gardens. 
which you can Google and get access to the tickets that we made because they're going very, very fast. All right. Well, thank you, everybody, very much. See some of you at Blackpool. And thank you, Alistair. Thank you. See you again soon. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? (laughs) Well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii, okay? And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy, too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics U.S. wherever you get your podcasts.